My name is Kieran McConaughey. I'm a lecturer in international relations at the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St Andrews. Most of my research to date has been looking at how states respond to political violence in countries that have an ethno-nationalist terrorist threat. Ethno-nationalist political violence in the context of Northern Ireland refers to political violence between the Catholic nationalist Republican community, either against the state or against the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community, and vice versa. Ethno-nationalist political violence, compared to what we might understand as religious political violence, is one which is driven by the desire to disrupt or change the political status quo with regards to the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. I'm from a medium-sized town in County Armagh, a town called Lurgan. It's about half an hour away from Belfast, about 25 miles or so. I grew up there in the nationalist community. Uh, Lurgan's quite a divided town, at least it was in the 1990s when I was growing up. As a small child, it didn't really seem peculiar, but looking back on it, I can see that there was a lot about growing up there that was not normal by anyone's standards. For example, some of my earliest memories would be of travelling in the family car, being stopped by the British Army, patrols asking for ID, searching the car, of uh, army helicopters landing and football pitches across the road from my house. A number of times going to primary school, we were evacuated because of security alerts, bomb scares, this kind of thing. Also, if you think back to the 1990s, those who are familiar with Northern Ireland will know that that was a time when there was a lot of sectarian violence around the parading issue. So you had the Orange Order parading through nationalist areas in Portadown, Drumcree, and that became the scene of annual standoffs between the Protestant Orange Order and the Catholic residents of that area with the police and British Army very much in the middle trying to keep the sides apart or uh, enforce the decisions of government regarding that parade. There would have been riots quite frequently at that dispute, but also spilling over into the wider area, including in my hometown. There were also a number of high-profile bombing incidents not that far away, which really stuck with me in growing up. We were really taught a very limited amount about the conflict when I was at school. We were shielded from it, both by our teachers and, and by my family. Not to say that they weren't political, but they, I suppose, realised that it was probably better to shield us from the politics and from all the nastiness that was going on. But from the bits and pieces that I picked up in school and from my family and then listening to the news, I started to realise that there was a bit of a discrepancy between what I was hearing, between this official narrative and what I could learn for myself and what other people were telling me. I became fascinated by this. I really wanted to know more. In Northern Ireland, a lot of people, understandably, are repelled by politics and others are drawn to it. There are a number of ways to be drawn towards politics in Northern Ireland, and I chose the academic route as opposed to any kind of engagement with politics or activism. When it came time to go to university, I did as many people did in Northern Ireland and went to Belfast, studied for a degree at Queen's University. I decided to study law with politics. I realised very quickly that I wouldn't be interested in a career in the legal profession. It was really politics that kept me going, kept me motivated to finish that degree. The parts of law that related most to human rights, the bits that I could see relating to criminal justice, for example, and to the security situation in Northern Ireland and to what I'd known and understood growing up, were the parts of that degree that interested me most. In Northern Ireland, I think most of the population still around, well, I think over 90% are still educated in denominational schools, so either the Catholic sector or the state sector, which is kind of de facto Protestant. That's changing slowly now, but very slowly. So really this time when I went to university was the first time that I found myself in a classroom with people from across the sectarian divide. That was a, a fantastic time. Being in that room and hearing a range of views was something that was really good for me at that point. 
I started to take courses in Irish politics and I went on to study a master's in Irish politics. From my own reading and from what I'd heard from people I'd known and talking to people, I thought that I understood all that there was to understand. I very quickly realized that that wasn't the case when I began to study it in, in real detail. And I realized that there was a complexity to this conflict in Northern Ireland and to the history there that I really had to struggle to get my head around. Another one of these realizations that I had studying Irish politics for the first time in a serious way at university was the long history of this conflict and enmity between communities on the island of Ireland. There's a tendency to think that things deteriorated and the trouble sprang from nowhere in the 1960s. But when you start to study this, you see that there are parallel situations in the 1920s and really in every generation before that, going back as far as the plantation of Ulster in the 1600s. Before the 1600s, Ulster had been the most rebellious part of Ireland, the part of Ireland that British state control had penetrated the least. And so the plantation of Ulster in the 1600s was designed to bring that back under control. What you had during this plantation of Ulster was the removal of a lot of the Irish population from land across Ulster, the plantation of those who gave their allegiance to the crown from Scotland, also from parts of the north of England, and the establishment of an aristocracy there, which disrupted the demographics massively and which eventually led to the native Irish population becoming the minority. Feeding into this is the religious dynamics. Those settlers, the planters who came from Scotland and from the north of England were predominantly Protestant and the Irish community were predominantly Catholic. I think in that you see the seeds of the sectarian conflict which sprung out much later. Sometimes there is a tendency to believe that because you had the Protestant and Catholic divide on the island of Ireland, that this cleavage between those communities was preordained and that it was somehow inevitable that that would be the lines along which uh, there would be conflict. But of course, that isn't necessarily the case. If you look at the 1798 rebellion, the leaders of the United Irishmen were overwhelmingly of the radical Presbyterian tradition. And there were United Irishmen who fought to break the connection between Ireland and Britain with a view to establishing religious equality. Presbyterians had been discriminated against as Catholics had up until that point because of the Anglican ascendancy. It's a more recent thing from the 1800s on that we start to see the sectarian cleavage open along this Protestant and Catholic lines before there had been unity and harmony in some places between Catholics and Presbyterians. That's a simplified version. My work on Northern Ireland looks mostly at the role of the state in responding to terrorism and political violence. While most of it looks at the recent conflict in Northern Ireland from the 1960s onwards, I talk in my research about the importance of understanding the historical roots of this conflict. There's a tendency sometimes when studying terrorism and political violence to look at the non-state actors and to try and understand what drives them to commit acts of political violence. Organisations that might be known as terrorist groups, the Irish Republican Army, the Irish National Liberation Army, the Ulster Volunteer Force, the Ulster Defence Association, these kinds of organisations are the ones that we mean uh, when we talk about non-state actors. There's a lot can be explained by looking at the nature and character of the state and how it developed over the hundreds of years. If we look at the United Kingdom state, like any state, it developed organically. You have new state organisations established as there's a need for them. Branches of the police, for example, the extension of healthcare, these kind of things. What that means is that there's not perfect coordination and cooperation between branches of the state. And I think that this helps to explain a lot about the particular response to terrorism in Northern Ireland. There is perhaps an overfocus on policy, this idea that all we need is the right policy and that will achieve the right response. 
I think that is a bit of a simplistic view and one which tends to see the state as a well-oiled machine where everything runs exactly as it should. The experience of the average citizen in day-to-day life is that the state is not well-oiled and that there are many parts of the state that don't work well and that different organs of the state have completely different characters depending on what their role is. I identify a number of factors that shape the state response to terrorism and the trajectory of the conflict. The big one would be the emotional impetus to response. Again, when talking about terrorism, there is a tendency to think that emotion belongs to those actors which are not connected to the state. The freedom fighters or those struggling for national liberation who have these lofty ideals that are driven by the heart more than the head. But the work on terrorism and the utility of terrorism has shown that it's fundamentally linked to this idea of evoking an emotional response. The clue is in the name, terrorism. That's what terrorism aims to do, is to scare people and to provoke a response. This has been theorized for decades, I think first by Carlos Marighello, the um, Brazilian guerrilla revolutionary and author who talked about this cycle of action, repression, action. When we think about the Northern Ireland conflict, it's very easy to see this and it's understandable, although it shouldn't be excused in some cases, that where you have sectors of the state, for example, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police force in Northern Ireland for much of the conflict there, drawn overwhelmingly from the Protestant Unionist community. And where that is a community that feels particularly targeted by the IRA, it's understandable then that that tempers how the police treat the nationalist community and how they respond to that political violence. Other aspects of my research that I think are important to understand is the way in which the different branches of the state coordinate, cooperate, or sometimes compete. When there is a call for greater resources for counterterrorism, the elites in each agency, the police, military, and different branches within those organizations, for example, will often compete, saying that it's their part of that agency or their agency that needs that investment of extra funds and extra resources. That might be best for them in their day-to-day duties, but it might not be better for combating terrorism at large. We have to understand the character of state organisations as well and what the state has developed these organisations for. For example, if you have an elite regiment of the army who have been developed to be particularly aggressive, to be fast acting and to respond in a hard, no-nonsense way, then deploying that regiment or that unit into a situation where there are a lot of civilians is likely to cause problems. And I think that's exactly what we see in the the early 70s and since the Bloody Sunday and Bally Murphy massacres, uh, when we have the deployment of the parachute regiment. At the start of the conflict in Northern Ireland in the late 60s and early 1970s, there were some serious missteps made by the British state in terms of how it responded to political violence and to the unrest that was there. What we see over the course of the Northern Ireland conflict is a slow learning by the state. Critics would say that these are competencies and understandings that the state should have had before, that it shouldn't have to be learning these on the job, as it were, that it should have understood Northern Ireland much better than it did. And of course, that's a product of this detachment of Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, this kind of semi-detached relationship where Northern Ireland had its own devolved institutions for 50 years. This meant that there was not really the understanding in Westminster of Northern Ireland and of the dynamics there that there should have been. If you look at some of the policies that were introduced in the early 70s, like internment without trial, curfews on the Falls Road, 
These were some things which really helped to alienate the nationalist community in Northern Ireland and which made it very difficult for a swift end to be brought to the conflict. Jumping forward then to 1980, 1981 and looking at the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland, there were, I think, serious missteps made there as well. The idea that this had to result in a victory for the British government in holding firm against what were demands about how people ought to be treated in prison, demands to wear their own clothes, free association and so forth. By being intransigent on this, the British government escalated the importance of this and this became a plebiscite on the legitimacy of armed conflict and also on the political nature of what the Irish Republican Army and Irish National Liberation Army were doing at the time. That really engaged a lot of the moderate Catholic population in Northern Ireland who might not have supported the IRA or terrorism in pursuit of a united Ireland, but at the same time found it very difficult to say that what these people had done, what they were fighting for, was not political, it was simply criminal. As time goes on, we start to see the British state make fewer of these blunders. There is a period of learning where the training comes up to speed, where the relationship between police and army is recalibrated to make sure that it's one that results in fewer inflammatory confrontations with the population, for example. They start to hone their response much more over the course of the 1980s. This can be seen by the number of terrorist incidents which fail before they come to fruition. By some accounts, almost two-thirds of provisional IRA attacks are thwarted before they're able to be carried out. This results in a period where the capacity of the armed groups in Northern Ireland is really run down, where lots are imprisoned, treating people through the criminal justice system, moving away from a war model or insurgency model is important for taking the heat out of the conflict. By the time we get to the late 1980s, early 90s, there is a war weariness on all sides, uh, on the Republican side, from the state and from loyalists too, and from the general public who are hungry then for a solution. From the early 1970s, the British and Irish governments are starting to realise that there will have to be a political settlement to the conflict in Northern Ireland and that there will not be an all-out military victory over the IRA. We can really see this by the talks and negotiations which start to happen. For example, the, the Sunningdale Agreement and the efforts to establish a power-sharing executive in the 1970s, which ultimately faltered. One of the other important things with relation to the conflict in Northern Ireland is the importance of narrative, of the story that is told by each party to the conflict and by the general public and their understanding of history and the course of history. Because of these hundreds of years of conflict and enmity in Ireland, there is a narrative within the Catholic nationalist Republican community about the perfidy of Britain and Britain's nefarious involvement in Ireland. So when you have missteps by the British state, like internment without trial, shoot to kill incidents, Bloody Sunday, where you have derogation from the established rule of law, where the criminal justice procedures start to be augmented, lessening those protections for people on trial, for example, that starts to feed into this narrative of the perfidy of Britain and makes it very easy for Republicans to paint the British state as up to no good. Moving away from that has been important, ensuring that the response to terrorism does abide by the regular rule of law and does hold to those principles which the state professes, really denies those who would use political violence the propaganda benefit that comes from those derogations. If we look then at the peace process and where we are today, narrative still important. People think that the conflict is over. It's fair to say that the conflict is greatly reduced in Northern Ireland, though there are still shooting incidents and bombing incidents annually. But the conflict over narratives is still being waged. And that's both the narratives of the past and who was right. 
and also the narratives about today and where we are currently. If we look at some of the communities in Northern Ireland, not everyone is uniformly happy with the peace process. There are many loyalists, for example, working class Protestants who feel that they've been left out of the peace process in some way, that this peace dividend that was talked about so much in the early 1990s as something that would spring from a political settlement has not visited them while working class Catholic communities have received the benefits of this so-called peace dividend. Along with that, loyalists feel that the way things are going in Northern Ireland mean that loyalist culture, British culture, British identity is being eroded. If we think back to the flags protests a few years ago in Belfast, where there was protests, demonstrations and some political unrest about the removal of the Union Jack from Belfast City Hall, which previously flew 365 days a year. There was a decision by Belfast City Council to fly that flag only on designated days, which was actually bringing Belfast City Council into alignment with public bodies across the rest of the United Kingdom. Loyalists felt that this was an attack on their symbols, on their culture and on their identity. If we look to the Republican community then, there are a minority of anti-agreement Republicans. So these are Republicans who didn't agree with Sinn Féin and didn't agree with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and with the ceasefires in the end to political violence. They believe firmly that Sinn Féin has sold out in moving towards power sharing and what they see as the administration of British justice on the island of Ireland still. They believe that there has been little progress towards the end goals of United Ireland. These are communities which are still very upset about the current political situation. It's easy to characterise both loyalists and dissident Republicans as the old heads who can't give up violence, who can't turn away from the lives that they previously knew, but that's not the case. If we look at the demonstrations on both sides, loyalist and on the, the Republican side, we see that there are a lot of young people there that these are highly motivated people. They're not necessarily from families which have been associated with political violence in the past. They are articulate and prepared to be around for the long haul and work for a long time to achieve their objectives. We are 20 years on from the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. I think it's fair to say that all communities in Northern Ireland have reap the benefits of that peace. Communities in Northern Ireland are less divided than they were before on the whole. Even if their political aspirations have not been fulfilled or things haven't gone as quickly as they would have liked, it's easy to be pessimistic about the peace process. But given that there has been centuries of enmity between the two communities, I think we've done very well. The period of relative peace and prosperity that Northern Ireland has seen in the 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement have meant that there is a, a much reduced appetite for the kinds of political violence that we saw 30, 40 years ago. And so I can't envisage a return to the brink of civil war like we saw in the 1970s anytime soon. But when we talk about the future in Northern Ireland, we really have to be careful. Looking back at the trajectory of the conflict, it's easy to say that things were inevitable or, or that things took a particular course. But obviously, there were many points along the way when we were surprised, when things that were thought to be impossible suddenly became possible in a very short space of time. To look at where we are today then, there is a peace and in some ways it's embedded, but it's also quite fragile. We have been without government at Stormont in Northern Ireland for quite a long time. Talks broke down between the two largest parties, the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin very recently. The details of that proposed agreement were leaked to the press, which basically rendered them toxic. 
I don't see there being a way out of this stalemate anytime soon. So we won't have those devolved institutions back up and running in the foreseeable future. What actually takes place of that remains to be seen. It might be direct rule from Westminster. It may be direct rule with input from the Irish government, although that's something which the unionist community would be hesitant to accept, obviously. One of the things which is a big challenge to the peace and continued prosperity in Northern Ireland is Brexit. It's something that has definitely been overlooked by Westminster politicians, by David Cameron first when he decided to call this referendum on Brexit and by those in charge of the negotiations ever since who seem to have relegated Northern Ireland to a footnote. Much of the peace in Northern Ireland and the benefits that have sprung from the peace process depend on the way that the border is administered. This free movement between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland is something which is incredibly important for the nationalist community, for their sense of a connection to the wider Irish community, and that they can do that unhindered, I think, is incredibly important symbolically, and symbols are very important in Northern Ireland. Also, the economic prosperity that springs from being able to trade north and south for people to be able to live in one jurisdiction and go to work in the other there's a lot of talk about technological solutions to the border, but a lot of that is very difficult to envisage. There are no examples at the moment of completely technological borders, and so we'll be forced to have some sort of physical infrastructure on the border unless some solution is, is worked out very quickly. This will make the border an issue again in the everyday lives of citizens in Northern Ireland. It will feed back into this narrative of dissident Republicans and others who say that we're still in the same situation that we were 40, 50 years ago, that there has been no improvement. Also, that physical infrastructure will represent targets for those who would like to attack the state. So it really does bring challenges. The demographics are shifting in Northern Ireland, and in the medium term, we're likely to see majority Catholic population. Whether that transfers directly into a majority nationalist population or desire for a united Ireland, I think remains to be seen because for the last 20 years or so, it's no longer the case that we can take one as a good measure of the other. That is likely to shift the balance somewhat and to make questions about the constitutional future of Northern Ireland more complicated. I would hope that it won't be the backsliding to violence, but it's impossible to rule out some escalation. When we look back to where I'm from in North Armagh to when I grew up in the 1990s, there was that constant backdrop of security issues, of the threat of political violence, of this fear of terrorism, this fear that young people would be caught up in it, either hurt by it or drawn into it. A lot has changed. Parents don't have those worries today. Uh, young people don't need to worry to the same degree about political unrest. Politics and political violence doesn't disrupt everyday life in the way that it did 20 years ago. People can go about their lives with confidence and politics, for the most part, is confined to conversations and to voting in elections.